Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the second to last message on the book of Joel. We are in Joel chapter 3 this morning, if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 16. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. I found this a difficult passage. Uh, this week. Uh, The general sense of it is relatively easy. Um, Even how it breaks down grammatically is is pretty straightforward. How all those ideas fit together and and how to put them into a sermon I found tricky. Um, So bear with me. We often like to speak of decisions for the Lord. It's a common thing that Christians like to talk about. Make a decision for the Lord, meaning you make a decision whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. Um, Maybe the language comes to us from Joshua, who said, decide this day whom you will serve. He told the Israelites, and they made a commitment that they were going to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. But this morning, in this passage, we come to a place where the decision is not mankind's, it's God's. 
And he is making a decision and a judgment that is his and his alone. There's two broad sections to this passage, verses 1 through 8 to 9 through 16. So that, that's kind of my outline. I, I wish I had like a, a, a nice moniker for each one of those sections. I don't because they overlap so much. But you notice that division as you look at the text because 1 through 8 is prose and 9 through 16 is written in poetry. If you're looking at the ESV, other Bible versions disagree and I, I'm not convinced that it's prose. It looks and reads like Hebrew poetry to me, but... It's not my expertise, and it's not important for our current discussion, but 1 through 8, 9 through 16. And and verse 1 marks this off as in those days and at that time. Namely, Joel is speaking of the the same time that he mentioned at the end of chapter 2, a time when God's Spirit is poured out on all people. Warning signs appear in nature, and God brings his wrath. We saw last week that Peter's use of Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, in his sermon recorded in Acts 2, is our evidence that these days are here. We are in the midst of them. They, are, uh, they have started to be fulfilled. They are, they are not completely fulfilled, but we are in the midst of that last time. And Joel describes these as the days when God restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And we might be tempted to think of the destruction caused by the locust plagues as the, the fortunes that he's restoring. But the future nature of this passage, the apocalyptic nature of this passage, pushes our minds in a different direction. In many respects, as we read the books of uh, Samuel, the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, we see a, a dreary picture. There's this grandiose period of history just after David assumes the throne over Israel. And, he, and he's in Jerusalem and he's reigning and all seems right with the world for the Israelites. The external threats are put down. Prosperity reigns and above all the right and proper worship of Yahweh is maintained. And that's especially true in the, in the books of Chronicles, where David's rule is set up sort of as a model and a standard with a longing for a future king, a Messiah who would uphold that standard and more. In subsequent reigns, it seems Israel is always fighting to get back to something of that glory. Like a middle-aged man striving to relive his youth. There are these occasional triumphs, but more often than not, he can't recapture his glory days. And the incessant drumbeat of time ensures a weariness that makes the battle always harder. But we shouldn't see the Jews as the primary focus of this passage. And I'll give you two reasons. First, it says Judah... Here and not Israel. So God specifies he's restoring the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and not Israel as a whole. And, and that's a reminder that most of the tribes of Israel had significantly rebelled against God and had gone their own way. Judah, the southern kingdom, typically 
had remained significantly more faithful than the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel after the civil war that took place during the reign of King Rehoboam, David's grandson. And, and there eventually uh, came a point where the northern kingdom was basically indistinguishable from the surrounding nations in their religious beliefs, in their practices, and in their customs. It's a warning for us that it's possible to become so accepting of the culture around us that we lose our very identity as God's people. But Judah stands here for those imperfect sinners who have not lost their identity. They are the remnant, the leftovers, those God has not forsaken in their disbelief. And when we couple that with the fact that Peter clearly saw us entering these last days at Pentecost, that's the second fact, then, then we are moved to see what Joel perhaps couldn't quite see clearly in his time, and that is that Judah is the church. And at this time, it says God will gather all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And, and there is, to our knowledge, no such thing as the valley of Jehoshaphat. So what's he talking about? Well, valleys were a common place for warfare in the ancient Near East. And, and you especially see this in ancient Palestine. Um, throughout the Old Testament, you see battles taking place in valleys. Um, you can imagine that uh, when history, much of history, even today, is still determined by geography... And important cities are placed in high places and places with natural fortifications make great locations for capital cities. And if an army came across a territory, they would want to get to a high place because you're less susceptible to the enemy. And it would be uh, a hill or a mountain. You can imagine two opposing armies might find themselves on opposite sides of a valley, leading them to meet in the middle for combat. One of the more famous biblical examples of that uh, is the story of David and Goliath, where the Israelites and the Philistines camped on either side of the valley of Elah. And so a valley is often a place of fighting. And the name Jehoshaphat, it's a name, it's a proper name. It was the name of one of the kings of Israel. Um, it means Yahweh will judge. And so what we see here is God calling on the nations, to meet him in battle. A battle characterized by God's judgment. But perhaps God surprises us here with the next line. He says that he enters into judgment with the nations on behalf of his people. End of verse, or middle of verse 3, 2, excuse me. God explains what has prompted this when he says, uh, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. The suggestion here is that the nations have taken God's people captive and placed them elsewhere across the world. And there's a series of indignities that are listed. Lots are cast for them, which should, suggests that they are just items or commodities that can be divvied up. Uh, that a young boy, arguably in you know, the history of the world, a young boy uh, who you have as a captive 
is probably the most valuable human being you could have, right? there. Um, you could stick them into a, a slavery situation, and you're going to have years of fruitful labor from them. And they're sold for no more money than an hour with a prostitute would cost. And a young girl, also incredibly valuable, could be a slave, sure, or, or you could sell her as a wife. That would be very valuable in the ancient world. And she's sold for a fifth of Hennessy or a little wild Irish rose to pass the night away. Not only are God's people portrayed as nearly worthless to the nations, but we are struck by how consumed they are with fulfilling their own pleasure. Human beings are less important to them than the cravings of the flesh. In the next lines, God specifically refers to Tyre and Sidon and the and Philistia. And, and these are strange nations to bring up here because while we know that the Assyrians took the northern kingdom away into captivity and we know that the Babylonians took the southern kingdom away into captivity, we don't have any information about any other instances of captivity as described in the previous verses. And here's what I think is going on. It's, it's a reminder that Joel isn't speaking about a specific historical event in his day, but a future event. He's speaking about a future event in terms that would be familiar to his audience. These three people, the, the Philistians the, the, and, and those who lived in Tyr and Sidon, um, I know they're the Sidonians, are they the Tyrians? I don't think that's right, but... Um, these three groups had been thorns in Israel's side in their early years as a nation. And I think that they might be representative of all the nations that had hurt Israel. Or maybe we should look at it like this. The captivity that Joel talks about reminds his audience of the big boys. Assyria, Babylonia, Media, Persia. But then he pairs that with these small little coastal powers that don't have a lot of weight anymore by the time Joel is writing. And there's this sense that all nations, big and small, great and weak, powerful and impotent, all of them who have caused great pains and all of them which have caused paper cuts to God's people are called upon to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley where God judges. But we also might be shocked by this because we often see in Scripture God acting because of his glory and, and for his name's sake. And yet here he says he's acting on behalf of his people. But this is not an unfamiliar current. Um, there is a current that runs through scriptures that is God identifying himself with his people. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 32... Uh, Moses prophesies, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. We know that expression, the apple of your eye is your, your beloved or the one that you cherish or your, your child. But it's a, it's a biblical reference. That's where we get the figure of speech from about how God cares for his people. 
But we know that we have entered the last times, as, as Peter's explained to us, and Judah is the faithful remnant of Israel, and that means Judah is the church. We know that faithful Judah longed for the anointed king. We look back and celebrate his arrival. So, so Judah was looking forward to a Messiah who was to come, and the church looks back to the Messiah who did come. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed descendant of David, and he is building his kingdom. And this theme of God associating with his people that runs through the Old Testament is taken to new heights in the New Testament at the arrival of the Messiah. His church, his saints are considered to be in him, mysteriously and spiritually incorporated into Christ. We are his body and he is the head we are well, and not unlike the Jews of ancient Israel. The church is often threatened by surrounding powers. A few days or weeks after Peter's sermon, an unbeliever named Saul, Saul oversaw the execution of a man named Stephen for believing that Jesus was Lord. In fact, that same Saul proceeded on a mass persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem. And what was the effect of that persecution? It scattered Christians throughout the nations that composed the Roman Empire. And so the church was scattered because of the attack of unbelief. That Saul, though, had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And, and from heaven, Jesus confronted Paul and asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But notice the question. It's not, Saul, why are you persecuting Stephen? It's not, Saul, why did you persecute the Christians in Jerusalem? It's not, Saul, why are you going to Damascus to persecute Ananias? He says, quite simply, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with Christians and Christians so identify with Jesus that Jesus can tell his followers that if the world hates you, he says this in the book of John, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now this isn't an absolute every time every person statement from Jesus it's a general principle that would bear itself out over and over and over in history there were times and there are times in history when following Jesus can make a person liked and appreciated in the eyes of the world a commitment to following just laws can make us model citizens in a nation that's committed to just government but it is more common in the history of the world for people to enjoy lawlessness, to treat human life as a cheap commodity, to gratify the flesh rather than grace a neighbor, to serve the body rather than serve the Lord, to devour pursuits of this world rather than delight in the perfect king. That same Saul became a follower of Jesus, as most of you know, and he experienced 
the same thing that he once brought. Like Stephen before him, Saul was executed for his faith in Jesus. And so it continued. We could speak of the roughly 20,000 Christians who were executed under Diocletian. We can speak of the tens if not thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians who were subjected to dimitude under Islamic conquerors. We can speak of the execution of all Christian converts in Japan under the Tokugawa shogunate. We can speak of the at least ten nations today that by law will execute anyone who converts from Islam to Christianity. Including several nations that we, the United States, have long considered allies. But sometimes in history, rather than execution, the powers that be that have demanded a token from Christians. Just a small concession to prove that you're just worldly enough just enough in line with the spirit of the age that the age can tolerate you. So you might recall the episode where the Roman authorities made a small request. Offer some incense to Caesar. Not much, just a pinch of incense to Caesar. and It's not a big deal. A small sacrifice. It's, it's more patriotic than religious. It's really more of a cultural thing. It's, it's not a big deal, just a, a pinch of incense and, and acknowledge with your lips that Caesar is Lord. And we'll know that you've not gone too far, that we can exist with you in this world. If you don't, of course, you, you won't get your papers to let you buy and sell goods in the marketplace, and that might make your life a little harder. <laughs> well, let's get real. It'll, it'll make your life miserable. It'll rob you of any wealth you have. You might go hungry. But, you know, don't be unreasonable. Offer a little smoke. Mutter a few words. And it'll be fine. That was the test of patriotism. That was the loyalty to the state. Yeah, but also loyalty to the culture. In China... Today, it's okay to be a Christian. It's okay to have a church, but it has to be a three-self church or more fully a three-self-patriotic movement church, which is under the thumb of the Communist Party. According to that venerable source, Wikipedia, the three-selves program's purpose was to unite and guide Chinese Christians to love the motherland, abide by the law, actively support and participate in the construction of socialism, adhere to independent efforts to the Chinese Christian church. That independent efforts part means that no foreigners are allowed to have a hand in the church. It means no missionaries are allowed, no visiting scholars can come and train pastors or fellowship with them. And while it's fair to say the three self-churches vary, the Communist Party obviously envisions a church that is more loyal to Beijing than to New Jerusalem more faithful to Secretary Xi Jinping than to King Jesus. And so significantly, Christians went and have gone underground. Comparatively speaking, the United States seems to be a haven for Christians, but 
It's difficult not to feel the winds of change. Already we see efforts and occasionally attempts at legislation not to outlaw Christianity, not to ban Christianity, but to derive a cultural token from Christianity. To ask us for some small symbol that we have just a little more allegiance to Uncle Sam than to the Prince of Peace. And we feel the prick from the right and from the left. At least I hope you feel it from the right and from the left because it is coming from both sides. At different times, one is a little more. It depends maybe where you're situated and it depends uh, where your influences are and your neighborhood and your workplace, but your family, your social circles, but they are both there. It's hard to say which of those is going to come out on top, but if you give refuse to give your token to the right. They'll label you a leftist and regard you as unpatriotic. So be sure that you stand properly for the anthem. Be sure you place your hand on your heart. You don't have to believe it all. Just offer your token. But the left has its insidious program too. And in a left-leaning city, we might feel the poking and prodding from that side a little more acutely. For us city dwellers, though, it's also the easier one probably to fall into and become a culture to it and not even feel the pinch. For others, it's more difficult. For others, some of us, it's, it's easy. For those of you who are public servants, for the teachers here, probably coming at you the fastest. You don't need to accept everything the left believes in, but offer your token. You can, you can believe your Bible about sexuality and gender, but keep it to yourself. Use the pronouns you're asked to use. Bake the cake we ask you to bake. Fill the script prescription for the pill that kills. Just say Caesar is Lord with your lips. Even if you're in your heart, you say it's not true. Sisters and brothers, it is becoming more and more difficult to follow Christ in a way that our actions match the convictions of our hearts. But what God says here is remarkable. He says that if we stay faithful to him, he will guard us like the apple of his eye. He will care for us like his own body. He will defend us. He will judge. He will go to war for us. He will restore our fortunes. And so do not fear what the culture tells you to do, whether from the right or from the left. But tune your ears solely to King Jesus and saturate yourself in his word, because he has our back. You'll notice that the very ancient imagery of these verses being sold to faraway lands and losing temple treasures, but they point us to the fact that God will reverse the fortunes of his people and he will reverse the fortunes of the nations.
he will stand by his people. The second set of verses reflect a, a hastening pace in, in 9 through 16. There's an urgency in these words. Spread the word, the prophet says. Get ready for war. Take all your instruments, your plows and your sickles, and turn them into weapons quickly. Even the weakest of you, among you should come out like a warrior. Bring the entire lot of your nation down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And Yahweh, Lord, send your troops. But the battle's anticlimactic. No warfare actually takes place. God sits and judges. Sitting would have been the typical posture for rendering judgment in the ancient world, not unlike it is in our world. Our judges, too, they sit at the bench and they render their verdict. But it's sort of the wrong metaphor when we think of war, isn't it? Because sitting would normally be a very vulnerable position in the middle of a battlefield. But God sits and judges. He has no fear. He's not threatened. The whole mass of assumed armies of the world in this metaphor pose no threat whatsoever to the God of the universe. And he will simply judge And so Joel likens the gathered nations to a grape harvest. Put in the sickle, he says, or uh, perhaps uh, the pruning knife. Uh, Take down the fruit. Gather up those clusters of grape. See how they pile up in the wine press. Stomp on them. Tramp them down into wine, into grape juice. See how the vats overflow. And the fact that Joel pictures it as a harvest time reinforces what verse 14 says tells us that the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The fact that the wine presses overflow, the vats overflow, is a reminder of how great the sinfulness of humanity is on this earth. But verses 15 and 16 remind us of an important idea. Judgment is not a bad thing. In fact, judgment is often a good thing. If, if all the nations on the earth are gathered, all the peoples then, well, that includes God's people too. When the Israelites first became a recognizable nation, God gave them judges. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Judges. And it's a funny name because in English, they don't do a lot of judging as we think of it. Rather than going around and settling disputes and sentencing criminals, they're actually doing a lot more fighting of gruesome battles and rescuing God's people. God's people had to be rescued from hostile enemies who had to be fought back and who had to be struck down. And that was their judging activity. And so, in many ways, the judges were rescuers. Judging cut two ways. It was a judgment on those who set themselves against God, and it was a rescuing of those who were with God. 
So God's judgment is a dark and foreboding moment for those who align themselves against him and against his people, but it's a day of salvation for God's people. And so we have threatening signs of God's imminent appearance, but a reassurance that God is a refuge and a stronghold for his people. Christians often like to speak of having been saved. That's fine. That's biblical. But the Bible doesn't just talk about the fact that you're saved in the past tense. It also talks about Christians being saved in the present tense. And it talks about Christians that will be saved in the future tense. What gives? And well, we have to understand the nature of salvation. When we say that we are saved, the Christian means, or ought to mean, that we are rescued from the power and consequence of sin. Sin is rebellion against God, rejecting his good ways for our own ways, rejecting God as king and setting ourselves up as kings and queens in his place. Saved from the power of sin, then, means that sin no longer has mastery over us. We can choose to sin, but we can choose not to sin. We can choose righteousness. We can live free of sin. We can live free from the destruction that a life of sin wrecks on us. And when we say we're saved from the consequences of sin, that means we are rescued from the just penalty for our rebellion, namely an eternity separated from God in hell. That's the ultimate consequence of sin, and that consequence is ultimately removed. But this isn't just past tense. In the, in the present tense, God is forming the Christian into this kind of person. And in the past, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection were the death blow to sin and death. But present tense, the effects are being appropriated even now as we speak. And while we have been set free from sin, we are not yet like our Savior who died. And we sometimes choose that sin. Meanwhile, God is preserving us in the faith that saves us. It is through our trust in him that he offers this salvation. So there's this ongoing nature, but it's also forward-looking as well. There's a sense in which salvation does not happen until we will find ourselves gathered in the valley of decision. Not our decision, but God's. There, with the full authority and power of all that he is, God will render a verdict. He will see our sin, which condemns us where we stand. But for the Christian, he will also see the blood of his son, which washes it away. And we will receive the verdict, not guilty. And at that moment, with the sickle of God's wrath over our head, finally stayed for good, there is a sense that only then we can say, we escaped, we were rescued, we were saved. And only then as we enter into the eternal life of our Savior will the last vestiges of sin be forgotten and will, be, and will we have escaped its clutches forever and for good and enter a perfection and a cleansing 
And will we truly look like our Savior as we ought? And so we will be gathered to this valley of decision. It's in a decision of God's deciding. And it will be a decision based on what we have done with our sin. Namely, have we clung to it and relished it and loved it? Or have we laid it at the foot of the cross and said, King Jesus, I know no other way than my sin. But I trust that your way is better. I don't know how I can defeat sin. But I trust that you can. And I trust that you did. I don't know how I can remove sin from me. But I trust that you will. I know that I cannot make my way back to the Father, but I trust that you are the way. And for those who trust, those who make up his body, his people, his church, the hand of his judgment will be stayed. And they will be saved in his stronghold forever. Let's pray. Father, it is fitting this morning that we turn to a passage that reminds us of the stain of your wrath. against your people because they have hoped in you. For we prepare this morning to remember that act of sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we pray that we would lean more deeply every moment into the grace that he offers That we might be striving by his power, by the spirit working within us to loose sin more and more from a stranglehold on our hearts. And that our desire would be righteousness and holiness. And that all other concerns would be added unto us. God, if there be any here this morning who do not know you in truth, maybe not know you at all, maybe have deluded themselves. They have taken up the name of the king, but they have bowed themselves to their own course, to their own crown, and to the accommodation of culture. Would you move them, God, to true repentance, to trust in your Savior, the man that you appointed for us, whose death we are about to celebrate? 
and so see them pass from death to life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.